Sadistic Penguin Studios presents the At The Show Podcast with Tom Yumper Garcia. Okay, you people sit tight, hold the fort, and keep the home fires burning. And if we're not back by dawn, call the president. And Tony Chalsa Burt. I don't know this industry jargon, YP, MP, whatever, okay? All I know is that I cannot get a record contract. We cannot get a record contract unless I take these tapes. It's almost time, so grab a drink. Get your popcorn ready and join the film discussion with two guys from Chicago talking movies. Welcome back to the At The Show podcast. My name is Tom Yumper Garcia. I'm with my co-host, Mr. Tony Chalsa, a.k.a. Mr. Burton. Mr. Burt, how you doing, my friend? Doing really well tonight. How are you, my good man? I am good, my friend. I'm very happy. It's the weekend. I know you have a four-day weekend. You lucky son of a gun, you. Uh, very, a lot of movies to watch. Yes, but I'm very happy. It is the weekend. Ready to talk some La Bamba today, man. I've been really excited about this one. Be a good one. So let's just get right into it, Tom. Let's go into uh, a big announcement we have today. Let's not waste any time. Yeah, so we would like to welcome Miss Keelan 12-Foot Skeleton to the Sadistic Penguin Studios website. She's going to be a contributor as a writer. She's also going to be doing some cool stuff with us on this show, uh, doing a segment that we'll be announcing later next month, probably. Uh, So welcome to Keelan. Really happy to have you on. Very happy to have you on. Thank you so much for joining us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. So Keelan, uh, be sure to look out for her stuff at sadisticpenguinstudios.com uh, to get her articles. Keelan's a big wealth of uh, pop culture knowledge and films. So she's also hilarious. So be checking out her out. But uh, with that, let's get into our what we've been watching. to me and also what were you just watching so what you been watching tom what have i been watching oh i've been watching quite a lot of different things what i've been watching is uh unlawful entry with our man kurt russell he is in the lead and he is a husband and boy um, he's got a problem in the line of Ray Liotta, Leota, whatever you'd like to call him in this. He is just really bad and the opposite of Henry Hill, um, who's bad also, but he's really, really not nice in the lawful entry. You ever see this one? No, I have not, but oh, you know, I'm a big if, Kurt Russell fan. If you're into what I would like to call ridiculously cheesy thrillers that are amazingly over the top, this is for you. And then also, if you have never seen it, um, streaming on HBO, I've watched it a couple times now in the last week, is Leviathan, which stars uh, one RoboCop, Peter Weller, Daniel Stern, um, Hector Elizondo. Oh, there's quite a few others. And it's just really, really, it's pretty much like the thing underwater. Have you ever seen this one? No, but that's like Hector Elizondo and uh, Peter Weller are like uh, 80s uh, big stars, man. And then you put Daniel Stern in there, and um, oh, and you know also in it Richard Crenna from like summer. He's like in Summer Rental. He's like the bad oh, guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, 
Dude, it's on HBO, and the camera quality looks really, really good. I, I think they put it like looks like it's 4K or something. But again, if you like, and I know you love the thing, I think mm-hmm. you'll like this one a lot. Do you, you my man? What have you been watching? Uh, so I saw two films as well. Uh, first one is my go-to. Uh, it's when I'm working and whatnot, and just want to watch like a movie in the background for you know noise. And that's Flashpoint. That's with uh, Donnie Yen and Colin Chow. Uh, great. Uh, Cantonese, a Chinese uh, action film. Basically, Donnie Yen's a cop, but he has another cop that goes undercover, and basically they're basically breaking up a triad gang that's led by Colin Chow. It has one of the greatest fight scenes in martial arts film history. Uh, <laughs> in a bunch of, it's in a bunch of a um, lit, top ten lists and a bunch of critics' uh, number ones. So be sure to check that out. We did, I did do a review on it for Martial Arts Gems on our website and on our YouTube at Statistic Penguin Studios. Uh, check that out if you want to see a little bit more of it. But yeah, definitely a, a good film. Have you ever seen that one? Uh, not until I watched that amazing little video you <laughs> put together. And again, please check that out on our YouTube channel. And because number one, um, for those who have never seen this movie, it really gives you an insight into a little bit more as what you were just explaining. Because for myself, um, it was probably a genre that is a little bit not one that I am as familiar with. So always glad for the um, suggestions and it's really good. Yeah. Thank you, my friend. No uh, and then the second movie I watched and I actually watched this one with my wife was less than zero. It's a uh, based off a book by Brett Easton Ellis, who also wrote American psycho. Uh, this film is not for the faint of hearts. It's a very good film, but it's to me, it's like a precursor uh, uh, requiem for a dream. That's probably the best way I can describe it. Uh, Robert Downey Jr., I think, masterfully shows how much talent he has as an actor in this film. And even himself, he said that this film and his role in this film was like looking into the ghost of Christmas future <laughs> when he did it. Um, very tough watch. Uh, my wife thought it was a very tough watch. It's a very good movie, but I definitely recommend anybody that has seen Rec Room for a Dream and wants to see something else like it, more of an 80s version, check this one out. Uh, Jamie Gertz is in it. Um, also, Andrew McCarthy, who you might remember from uh, Pretty in Pink. Uh, he was like a big 80s like heartthrob back then. But it's uh, totally worth it and depressing. Have you seen this one? Yes. Uh, actually, about seven years ago, me and my wife also sat down and watched it for the very first time and bought the same review she had as your wife had. Um, really good soundtrack. Um, really, um, Brett Easton Ellis, everything on the screen, pretty much that has been from his book to the screen I've enjoyed. And as you stated, a really tough watch, but that doesn't mean it isn't a good film and it is a really good film. Yeah. Very, very, uh, hard film to watch, but you know, sends a good message. Does. Uh, but that's what we've been watching. Let us know what you've been watching at Twitters at the, at the show pod. Or you can check us out at our individual Twitters at the Little Yumper or at the Sugar Baggy. But we have another segment that we had to plan with one of our special guests that comes on from time to time. I know everybody loves him. He's everybody's favorite mailman. Let's get to our Mailman Jack segment. No, man, Jack, I love that opening. I, I was like one of my uh, favorite things making it for you. It's classic. I love it. So, Mailman Jack, 
I'm doing great, my friend. How are you doing today? Pretty good. Pretty damn good. I also Only... call... oh, go ahead, man. Go ahead. Nothing. Um, <laughs> come on. <laughs> no, I was just I complimented you earlier on your clear picture and camera, man. I don't know what I did wrong. I think I turned the phone sideways. Did that help? <laughs> I don't <Right>? know, Jack. <laughs> Whatever you did, it looked great. <laughs> This room is like uh it's an interrogation room, I think, from a, the from the local police department. It's very bright and white in here. That's uh, what makes this great. It makes just it like, like me. you know uh, they put you in a room, you know, and just put the spotlight. Hey, whatever you guys need to know, room. ask me now. <laughs> well, What's, no man, Jack. What do you have for us today for your special delivery segment? Hey, uh, uh another movie that i really love um i think i it's uh near dark it's it's a western vampire horror movie directed by Catherine bigelow who won the oscar for what was it zero dark 30 mm -hmm. i love this movie uh it was one of, yeah do you ever go to the show and watch a movie and you kind of just watch it with your jaw kind of open there's certain movies i remember when i saw this at the show i was just like what am i watching and i can't take my eyes off of it you know <laughs> i like it was one of those like the mate the first time i saw the matrix actually keanu reeves makes these a lot of jaw open movies the matrix and the first uh john wick movie same exact reaction um but uh yeah, near dark. It was. It was. It's just so wonderfully gory and weird, and <laughs> got some awesome actors in it. Yeah. So the movie was released in 1987, and like Jack said, it was directed by Catherine Bigelow, who also directed Strange Days, The Hurt Locker, and Zero Dark Thirty. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, she went on the best. Well, she um, did direct it too. She, she did that. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Jack. Crazy. Um, talented woman definitely she's also the ex-wife of james cameron who uh makes a cameo appearance in this film exactly <laughs> and he i think he got her a few stars to be in the movie too yes right? yes because uh adrian pastar is in this movie jenny wright uh lance hendrickson who's from alien bill paxton's from alien uh you also have uh What's her name? Alvarez, Sergeant Alvarez from Aliens. Jeanette. Yeah, Jeanette. Yeah. yeah, the three of them are from Aliens, and he directed that, and they ended up married for a couple of years, right? Yep, uh, and the, before he married um, Linda Hamilton, I think exactly. that was. Um, I wonder if that had anything to do with them. You know, yeah. hey, I got these uh, all these actors' names. You're making this uh, this vampire western movie, and. I'll, I'll toss the, your name, you know, weird, but Bill Paxton, Bill Paxton steals the whole movie. Oh, I mean, oh. he's kind of stole like any the aliens films, aliens, the film. Right. Oh, when he, uh, just his, I mean, we have his line in our closing game over, man. <laughs> like, just, like he was hilarious in, uh, that film, you know, he's also the only person I believe to be killed by a predator, an alien and, uh, what else was it, Tony? He was killed by something else. Predator and oh, Terminator. Predator, yeah, Alien, and Terminator. He's the only person in film history to be killed by all three. And, and um, mm -hmm. 
I know. And my guy, my favorite weirdo movie actor, Lance Henriksen, is in this too. <laughs> I mean, I love Lance Henriksen. Yeah, great. Huge fan of Lance Henriksen. Pumpkinhead, one of my favorite films uh, growing up. Uh, another horror movie that doesn't get enough love. I mean, it's had what three sequels and it's they're bad. Yeah, but, but oh, yeah. the first one is always the best one. Also, he's Bishop from Aliens, yeah, uh, the Alien I'm, series. He's he's an android in <laughs> Alien, right? Yes, he's a, <laughs> he could play anything. Great, android, that. human. You ever, but, see man, uh, you ever see man's best friend? Oh yeah, that's like yeah. I saw that in theater. That was, Did you? Wow. Yeah, it was like ninety. Back then, around there. And then you brought up the the. The bandit movies in Hard Target. He's a bad guy at Hard Target. Exactly. He's... Arnold Vosloo, the mummies, is a side guy. Oh, yeah. That's I, I'm a big Lance Hendrickson fan, strangely enough. You know, my wife loves, uh, um, you know, what's his name from National Treasure? And I like Lance Hendrickson. So <laughs> that's fair. That's fair enough. So you kind of mentioned it already, Jack, a little bit, but uh, how did you first discover this film? I think it was just a movie. I just, you know, like, I didn't even know what I was walking into. You know, like, I was just at the show. I saw it alone. I think it was like a day. It was a time in my life that was a little dark, too. <laughs> and probably had nothing to do and just went to the show and... I stumbled into it and like I said, oh my God, this is really freaking awesome. <laughs> you know, I just kind of watched it like, what am I watching here? And um, I'm glad I went. I hate to be mean to you, Gilbert. I really do. But you disappointed me. Did you know anything with, with, with Bill Paxson and it, you know, and his scenes are just, just great and you the movie itself, like you said, is just it's memorable for being a Western mixed with being a vampire movie. Right. <clears throat> I remember specifically going to a, a Cubs game and sitting in the bleachers. And after the fact, me and some buddies went to Best Buy because we were collecting DVDs. This is like 2003. And they had this incredible, which is probably the one you're seeing for 50 bucks now. It was like this like double disc. It had like collectible posters inside. We had never seen the movie, but this box was so cool that we bought it, and um, it, it didn't disappoint. It's definitely a, a cool movie, and it kind of hold it holds up, you know. I mean, um, you would turn on like a movie from nineteen eighty seven, and it seems dated, you know. Yeah. You watch this one, and you think this could kind of come out again and yeah. be pretty similar to what's going on. Yeah, I got a lot of like to me, like I told you, I told you, Lantangerson and Pumpkinhead is my one of my favorite roles of him. I kind of got a lot of those vibes because that movie's set in the country. This movie's set in Oklahoma in a city, but you still kind of get like those, uh, you know, Western vibes right. of like I those mean, small just, towns. She's a really good, you know, and then like she went on to make, uh, Blue Steel and Point Break mm -hmm. after that. Blue Steel's a really good movie. Right. Yeah. I love that I mean, movie. And it's just I it's just something about that movie. Like it's and I went, like I said, I we were talking, I went and saw it alone. I went back and saw it again at this show, like maybe a week or two later with somebody. And 
they thought it was really good too. Maybe not as much as I did, <laughs> but you know, when you see a movie twice at the theater, I think it kind of hits you. A certain well, well, going and like looking, just going through on IMDb, I think it's rated like a six point nine, which is really good. Um, I think it's certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. It's one of those movies that uh, doesn't get enough, you know, publicity or like now. I've noticed, like, it's kind of funny that you mentioned this because I noticed the other day that there's a lot of, like, TikToks and uh, YouTube shorts that are showing scenes from this film. The the, uh, the bar scene, where they oh. go, uh, and that's very gory. And the special effects are awesome. Uh, they take all the, uh, the, you know, the vampire lore and they kind of, like, throw it into a blender and you don't really see all that. And they don't ever mention the word vampire in the film. Exactly. It's just, I got bit, right? Uh, <laughs> I got bit. And I mean, it's all, we know what they are, but it's cool, you know, and they never say they're, they're just these vagabond <laughs> vampires. Oh, and, and that kid, the kid, what's his name? I, I wrote some really bad uh, notes here. Uh, that's uh, jo Joshua, Joshua John, John Miller. Miller. Yeah. And he was in the river's edge too. That's a good movie too. Real um, good movie. Keanu Crispin Glover. Real good. But like that one scene at the beginning where he's like talking and he's like, I'm a man trapped inside a boy's body. Yeah. <laughs> it's, sure, it kind of rips your heart out, like, you know? Do like you a, know who um, Josh Miller's brother and father are? Me? A chance, right? Josh Miller is his name, right? Do we got it? Right? Joshua. Yeah, Joshua Miller. Yeah. His dad's uh, Jason Miller from The uh, Exorcist. Yes, oh, do you okay. know who then Jason? Well, it's his stepbrother, but Jason Miller's other son is uh, Jason Patrick. There you go. Bing, 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 bing. There you go. And this film wow. was released in '87. They're both in vampire movies in '87. The Lost Boys in this one. Put it all together, right there. It's it's all coming together. It's <laughs> puzzle we're creating here. I, I'm more intrigued with the whole James Cameron tossing Catherine Bigelow three stars from Alien. Yeah, it's kind of because I was watching. I'm like, holy shit, that's like, you know, that's Jeanette from uh, Aliens. And then there's Bill Paxton. And I'm like, oh, and there's Lance Henry. So I'm like, the whole alien cast, I guess they decided to do something on the side. She's awesome in Terminator 2, also. Yeah, she's a uh, stepmom, the foster yeah. mom. Uh, Not my mother, Todd. Um, uh, my kids probably still don't know why I say we keep odd hours to them every once in a while. <laughs> they, uh, <laughs> We keep odd hours. That's like the, the most deadpan, <laughs> funny line in the movie. Uh, it makes me laugh too when he tells him, uh, when he tells him, you know, back in the war, he's like, what war? He's like, who'd you, what'd you do? He's like, I fought for the South. We lost. <laughs> I was like, yeah. Like I said, I, I don't know. I'm so glad you asked me to do this because it's bringing back a lot of, that's why I said as soon as I think that my brain might have lost. <laughs> and um, I remembered how much I enjoyed this movie. And um, and I went back and watched it again last week. And I was just like, damn, this is still up. Because it used to be on, if if I remember, it used to be on HBO a lot. And now you can't even find it. Unless you, like you said, you get this Criterion channel or you find the DVD somewhere. Yeah. Um, 
it's kind of a shame like all these movies from the 80s i remember watching on like uh cinemax or you know uh hbo right. at night they're not even available anymore right i mean i could remember you know back when you know we got cable it was so such a cool thing and it would be like oh near dark standing and i'll watch that you know yeah. <laughs> and now i'm like damn where is it because it's, it's a damn good movie i i really like like i said she had a nice little like and then what she finished it off with point break now everybody knows point break but personally i think this is a better movie than it, you know as as far as a movie goes I would say it is. I actually really enjoyed this film. Like, I'm a big horror fan. Like, I really enjoy. I, I like because it was something different. Even though it was back in '87, which is, you know, it wasn't. It took horror and it showed it like a different side of it in terms right. of, uh, like, it didn't stick with the traditional like vampire lore. It had some stuff with sunlight, but as far you never really know if they can see their reflection or you know they're you don't even know if they're really immortal. You know they heal, right. Um, but you don't know, like, like just the fact that he gets sick it, from the bite and he turns right away, which is pretty crazy. For his dad. Now, the guy that played his dad, too. He was stunning so many. He's just got one of those faces. He's like, uh, but like that scene where Caleb jumps on the truck when, uh, uh, what's Severin? He's, he's chasing him. Mm -hmm. And he's like, you got, you knew as soon as he talked to this guy, oh, this truck driver's he's gone <laughs> you know it's like bullseye you know? yeah it's like oh sorry about that and then he pushes them to the side or even uh <laughs> when like go back to the bar scene when he, he's uh to just go in there to, to basically kill everybody and he's talking to the guy at the bar and he's like oh i'll just guy the bartender refuses him a drink he's like well i guess i have to just drink his and he takes a drink of it and spits it in the guy's face he's like you drink this shit <laughs> Then with the the beer, yeah. Did I ever tell you about Buffalo Bill? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a really really uh, nicely done and like a, I would say it's like a hidden gem really? for horror. I mean, it's it's a lot of things. There's a lot going on in that movie, and it's really like where last time we were talking about Shakes the Clown. And it's not really that great of a movie. This is a good movie. <laughs> hey, you know? man. Scorsese said Shakes the Clown is the Citizen Kane of drunken clown movies. <laughs> but like this one, it's like, yeah, you know, I could see why uh, she really knew what she was doing. And I don't know. It was just in Bill Paxton and Lance is in it. And uh, it's just, I don't know. What did now? You're both the seen if you both watched it you said you watched it John. yeah yeah oh yeah but like uh i don't know uh, i'm glad i, actually I like it now more like I, it's a movie that the more you keep watching it the better it keeps getting i think like, you realize how good it is i it was just it's just something i thought it was pretty cool and then like i said and then it, then um Blue Steel came out, and it's like, oh, it's that same director. And then I went and saw Jamie Lee Curtis is good in it, and at what point break after that? And then it was just like, wow, you know. And then she kind of stopped, and then she hit her stride again and won an Oscar. But it's pretty freaking cool, I think. And so, 
you know the character of May. She's it's played by Jenny, right? Right. Um, Tony or Mailman Jack. Do you know what other movie she was in that uh, we really enjoy? Um, what? you're talking about uh, Young Guns too? <laughs> yes, I knew you would. Oh know yeah. It. All right. Okay. She's uh the Bordello uh owner, and she tells, "Kiss my ass." This time, kiss my ass. <laughs> <laughs> she rides off. When okay. I saw her, I'm like, "Holy shit!" She's from Young Guns. <laughs> Uh, it's i she's she's good i mean it was just so much going on in this like he's you know he takes her with back to his bar you know where he lives and the horse wants nothing to do with her horses don't like me gee i wonder why (laughs) you know and it's it's such a it's such a good movie and then like his little weird thing with uh the, the kid, uh, Homer, mm-hmm. she's mine, <laughs> you know, I turned her, you know, and he did not like Caleb, and, it, yeah, and then he wanted he, to turn that his scene at the end with his little sister, oh my god, and he had the coke, he had like the pop machine at the hotel, the motel, oh, it just made your skin crawl just watching <laughs> it, you know, because then it's like, and then it gets a little far-fetched, but that's cool, I mean, it's, oh. it's, it's I, I, I really like this movie a lot, a lot. So we talked about Lance Henriksen, and I want to ask both of you guys: um, Do you think he gets the respect as an actor that he deserves? Mm, no, I mean he no. got a lot of work. I know yeah. that, but maybe not as much as he has a very distinctive face, and his as he's a really good actor. And you know, I I maybe not. I guess he should get more. He shows up in a lot of uh, a lot of roles even before this and bit pieces. He's in this movie with Jeff Bridges called Jagged Edge. He plays like yeah. a police officer, but like he's he's showing up in little parts until like Pumpkinhead, until where he's more of a lead. But at this point, I mean, as of today, he's you know he's eighty three years old. So I mean, he's been acting for quite some time even before this and. No, I don't think he gets the respect he deserves. Give Lance more respect. He should. I yeah. mean, you know, let's give him one of those lifetime yeah. uh, achievement yeah. Oscars one day. Don't put him in a don't put him in a bag like Alien Three. They can't uh bring Bill Paxton out, unfortunately. Um, no. But, um, unfortunately, no. Another Bill Paxton film that's really good, he actually directed is Frailty. That's a very yeah. good film. Uh, so he kind of has a concept of like what horror is, uh, but uh, Mailman Jack. So let's do a, a, a new thing called let's do a, your burrito rating of this film out of five. <laughs> how many burritos would you give this film? How many burritos would I give this movie? Uh, all right, I'm not crazy about how it ended. Let's give it four. And I was starting my fifth burrito, but I realized how full it was, and I didn't finish. I like so that. Call it four and a third burritos. Four and a third. That's uh, the best rating ever. That is amazing. <laughs> uh, sometimes, you know, you throw that burrito out the window, it hits Jack True. Black riding his motorcycle. That's true. And, uh, <laughs> It's burritos making me so. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> and then he punts your dog. 
<laughs> uh, that was, yeah, I mean, I, I, thanks, you know, I've, I've said it a million times. Thanks for asking me to do this because, uh, I've got so many things in my head. If I you love need me to do this until we're both deep, deep cuts and deep, uh, I deep mean, movies. I, I got records I thought, thought about and other oh, weird yeah. movies and Heck yeah, whatever. Uh, Bring it on. I'm here for you. <laughs> uh, I will take you. Uh, yeah. We were, I, I was, I sent out, a, do you still call it a tweet? Uh, my wife and I were watching just the mannequin before I yeah. came up here to set oh, up my nice. beautiful new uh camera stuff. <laughs> and oh, yeah. even you turn on some of these movies, and like uh, Andrew McCarthy's in it, and James Spader, <laughs> it's like, oh, these guys were in better movies together. Oh, yeah, <laughs> than yeah, this one. and the mom from Golden Girls is in it. and <laughs> Kim Cattrall, it's like, Ooh, what the Cattrall, hell was yeah. going on? How many, how much drugs really happened while they were <laughs> while they were making this movie? That was Mannequin too. They had to do all the drugs for Mannequin too. You know, <laughs> oh, awful sequel. All right. And speaking of drugs, <laughs> did you guys watch that documentary about We Are the World on Netflix? No, I, I haven't got uh, up on my schedule to get. Oh, to. check it out. Yeah, I've heard I've because heard I've heard some things. I've heard some some it's, rumors. It's, some things. it's a lot better than I expected it to be. And it's I was just thinking there had to be a lot of drugs going on <laughs> because you the whole it. thing like I took place after the the American Music Awards <laughs> yeah. and then they stayed there all night. <laughs> yeah, that's and, true. Uh, yeah, tell me maybe next time we talk you can tell me what you think if you saw it. Oh, but gotcha. uh, it was pretty cool, and Huey Lewis and Al Jarreau kind of made the whole the whole thing. Awesome. It was it was pretty cool. Yeah, I definitely check it out. Uh, I know um, Zoe has mentioned it about the Wailing Jennings story where he uh, oh. <laughs> was upset. Um, so uh, I, I might check it out. It it was it was it was pretty. It was good. It was <laughs> it was it was a lot of fun. It was some. <laughs> funny stuff to go and then like what totally blows you away is how good of a singer steve perry is <laughs> i mean we all knew he was a good singer but like when all these other people are like oh steve could sing <laughs> you know it was, it's it's good check it out we'll do we'll at do. least i enjoyed it uh, right. i will you know i will yeah tony anyone thing with music tony would definitely you check know, out I'll, you know i'll enjoy it <laughs> uh it, it's there was a, a lot of going on, and then um, unfortunately, Prince didn't want to be around that many people, I guess, <laughs> and uh, he wasn't there because that would have really put it over the top. Definitely. But um, this, let's. I, what else did I want to say about this movie? Um, my ADD meds wore off. Brain's <laughs> going in a lot of different directions. Uh, I don't know. Um, just that whole the whole back to this movie, like the whole thing with the with Lance and the the they were like the mother father figure in it, and mm -hmm. and I, it just amazes me to think how people write this stuff. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a part where they're driving um, before they get uh, the guys try to rob them, and they're reminiscing right. about when he bit her for the first time, right? 
he's telling her about how he faked he had a flat tire and he turned her that night. It's just crazy, like how it's like, oh yeah, I bit you, and now you gotta kill people for blood, <laughs> for blood, and they're in love. <laughs> and even at, when they're like, uh, I don't want to spoil it, but towards the end, she says they're she tells them, oh great memories, great memories, fun times. <laughs> I and I put a little gif out up there from this morning of how uh, <laughs> Homer butts the dots. Yeah, there's so many great scenes in that movie. I I, I recommend it. If you guys want to sign up for Criterion and then dump dump it the next day <laughs> to watch it, yeah, or seven day trial, guys. Do it. Discount bin at Target and it's five bucks. Buy it. It's Do worth. It. It's worth every penny, even with tax. Even with tax. <laughs> Uh, but uh with that jack thank you so much for coming on we always look forward to hearing your uh obscure films and movie <laughs> and uh music thoughts uh we're definitely going to have you on again for your segment uh and you brought a good one for this for this one so you had two uh home runs the past two uh segments my man oh all right uh and now i got a taste for a burrito thanks a lot <laughs> <laughs> thanks for giving my new rating scale hey uh guys anytime you you need need me I'm here, unless I got something else to do. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> All right. <Perfect>. Thanks, Jack. <laughs> All right. I'll see you. Right, take care. it easy, man. Mailman Jack, a national treasure right there, that man. Best calves on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that film was actually, I really enjoyed that film, Tom. Like, I, he picked the, like I said, he had a home run on Good that one. one. He really, he really did. I really, I really enjoyed that one. It's a deep cut classic. Mm-hmm. Definitely a deep cut. So if you haven't checked it out, uh, like Jack said, you can check it out on the Criterion channel, which is an app you can download on your phone or iPhone. Uh, it's free for seven days unless, and um, I think after that, it's $11 a month. Uh, you can check that out or, and you can cancel if you want. But I was looking to have a lot of older movies in there. Um, but yeah, definitely worth it. All right. But with that, my friend, let's get to our main event of the evening. Uh, thanks to Mayo Man Jack for doing his segment. He'll be back again. Uh, but our main event of the evening is the 1987 film La Bamba. Uh, so, Tone, tell me about the first time you saw this film. Ooh, the first time I've seen this film was uh, about a block away, a friend that I had made in elementary school around fourth grade. I would go over his house all the time, and he'd watch two movies, or we would watch two movies. At first, it was, well, it turned into these were the only things we would watch. It was La Bamba, and it was Jaws 4. And uh, La Bamba has stuck with me ever since that time. Every piece of it. Um, this review that we've, we 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 did this time around it was just really tells me what a great movie it is. Um, it's a lot more than just a musical biography to me, and we'll we'll get to that as we go along here. Yeah, and you know it is a musical biography, but some of the scenes in the film are dramatized. Uh, but uh, when doing research for this, which I will go into the development in a second, uh, I found a lot of nice, cool stuff that, uh, you know, um, the director and his brother, uh, Luis Valdez, and his brother Daniel Valdez, really got a lot of good information from the family. But um, I'm really looking forward to talking about this. It's one of my favorite movies when I was younger. My brother's favorite, one of his favorite movies. Uh, I'm not a really a big fan of biopics, but this one is a movie that I'll constantly watch no matter what at the time. It really got me into my love for Lou Diamond Phillips as an actor. Um, and then, of course, you know, he went out to do Young Guns and Stand and Deliver. You know, those are like some of the films I liked a lot with him. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, 
Isai Morales has basically put him on the map after Bad Boys. It's a great film that I enjoyed. And the first time I saw it, I think, I believe it was, uh, we rented it from the movie store, from Masterpiece Video on 47th Street. <laughs> That's awesome. That's very awesome. Very cool. Yeah. yeah. So with that tone, let's uh, let's dive right in and go into our film development. Let's do it. thoughts i use the technique of positive visualization so before the release uh richie valens who the film is based off was one of america's most like unknown rock stars he wasn't even mentioned in the rock encyclopedia by lillian roxon which is kind of ridiculous considering that he, even though his career was short he did take some kind of an impact in chicano rock uh tony i know you're a big music guy doesn't that kind of like shock you that before this film, he wasn't really pretty much really unknown? Yeah, it's really shocking um, for lots and lots and lots of reasons. And I'll jump right to the chase that, you know, last night I was sitting here and I was putting together these slides. And honestly, I, 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 I me and Katie joke because I tear, I broke down in some tears and I started thinking I, I'm a big what if guy. Okay. I'm a big what if and in music, I'm a huge what if guy. And, the what if story of what would have happened if this plane crash didn't happen um, for not only for, um, for him, but just the trail he really could have blazed, you know, before Carlos Santana, we're talking like 12 years before Carlos Santana, we got a, we got a musician here who's burning up the charts and not only that, but in a time period that a lot of people, it's going to turn a lot of people's heads. And, um, it's a shame that it took the movie to come to that to that point, but I guess I'm glad that also the movie has brought it back to light. Yeah. So the film's development, uh, Luis Valdez, who eventually became the director, uh, is known for as the father of Chicano theater and film. Uh, he wrote a movie and Broadway play called Zoot Suit, which is about the 1940s assimilation with Latinos in suits against sailors and just basically the culture of the time against Latinos and Chicanos. Uh, he and his brother actually got the performance and Broadway showing in L.A. He was the first Latino director to get his show in Broadway in L.A. And then eventually the first to do so in New York. Um, so while he was in his dressing room on one of his nights, he was sitting there with his brother and they were discussing, okay, we just did the 40s with Zoot Suit. What are we going to do next? So they were thinking about ideas. They came, well, let's do something with the 50s. And while they were thinking about it, his brother's like, well, we like music, let's do rock and roll. He's like, sure, let's do something with rock and roll in the 50s. And at this time, miraculously, the president of Mexico had sent mariachis to the first performance for Zoot Suit because, like I said, it was a monumental moment. So he sent mariachis there. And at this time, when they were discussing this, they heard the mariachis outside playing La Bama. And that's when they got the idea, let's do something on La Bamba and Richie Valens. Uh, Valdez is not a person that usually writes for films that he can't direct, but he only wants to write for this film because he wants to put a, Lat a Latino Chicano message out there. Uh, he was basically trying to find how he could write this. Now, at the time, the Valens family, the Valenzuela family was not really in the public eye. They basically went away and kind of were hidden because they didn't like the publicity. 
they're in like the interviews with media. They were kind of, they just didn't want to discuss it. It was like opening up a, a wound every time they discussed it. It was very hard for them to do so. So Daniel Valdez, who's Luis Valdez's brother, and him spent five years tracking down the Venezuela family. He went and uh, basically they found Bob Morales, who's Richie Valdez's brother, at a bar called Daisy's. And it was literally 15 minutes away from where they lived, which is kind of funny because they were searching all around because they moved out where their original place of, you know, of origin. And they now they're right where they live. And they like literally 15 minutes away, but they spent five years looking for them. Uh, so Valdez basically went with his brother and talked to Bob and was talking, you know, kind of doing some feelers out about possibly doing a documentary or a film with him. And Bob's like, sure, you know, yeah, we can do it. Um, how about we, you know, meet and you come talk to me somewhere else. So what Valdez did, he wanted to get an authentic story from the family members. So he was able to interview Connie Venezuela, who's Richie's mom, uh, Bob Morales, who I said is Richie's brother, Bob Keen, who's Richie's manager, and Donna Ludwig, who is Donna, who the song Donna is written after. What he did was he had a video camera and review, what, interviewed what them song, for an hour. What was the song called? Donna. Now, before we go any further, this song right here, um, you know, because a lot, I, I, you know, I see our, our comments here. That, that this band did it better than this or that, but man, that song, that original song, it's so awesome if you really think about it. But go, go on, go on. I'm sorry. No, that's totally fine. Oh, sorry, no, go on. Go on. So uh, after the interviews, he Valdez had been contacted by Taylor Hackford. Now, Taylor Hackford is a director for known for Officer and a Gentleman. He's coming off a successful with Officer and a Gentleman. He also went on to direct Ray, which won Jamie Foxx an Oscar. And one of my personal favorites, Blood In, Blood Out, who me and Cherizi constantly talk about. And Brian as well with Popeye Cerveta. Uh, one of the a prison, Mexican prison movie, but it's hilarious in certain terms of it. Um, Taylor Hackford actually bought the portfolio of the Valenzuela family from them and he wanted to make a film about it knowing that valdez was doing this research he told him he hired him to write the script for this film so valdez was hired as his writer for screenplay and script valdez said uh for him la bamba is not simply a story of ethnic triumph richie valens is a dream of being a rock and roll star and just one more expression of the american dream where assimilation and integration can be as important as success so he put a lot of work into this. Valdez is also a child of farm labor and was a big supporter of the Cesar Chavez movement. His family were fruit pickers as well. And he lived in those camps and whatnot to uh, basically get, I'm getting you an apple. I'm sorry, I just read Brian's comment. Yeah. Uh, to get into, um, to basically show how workers and farmers were treated as well as the hard work, you know, to come for the American dream. And he was really trying to put that into his script. The script took him six months to make and write, which is very, very quick in Hollywood. That's extremely quick. After all the research he did, he got his script done. He tried to tell Bob Morales about what he was doing with his character. And he, Bob Morales told him he blamed himself for his drinking. He called himself the bad guy. He also said, I was a bastard. You can tell whatever story you want to tell about me. But Richie was a nice guy. He was a great brother. And he was emphasizing that Richie's story has to be told. 
which is pretty crazy that Valdez and his brother basically went on a five-year hunt for this family to get some information. And once they were done, it, it took them six months to write the screenplay, which is yeah. uh, remarkable. Uh, Taylor Hackford, who was originally going to direct the movie, began to realize, well, maybe I shouldn't direct it because, for one, I'm Caucasian. And I think I want it to be more authentically told by a Chicano. So he said, Valdez, why don't, Luis, why don't you take this role as director? And he was kind of offish, wasn't sure at first, but with Hackford's encouragement, he decided to do so. Hackford will stay on as an executive producer. The funny thing about this uh, tone is that they actually originally named this film Let's Go. Let's go, <laughs> let's go, let's go, little. <laughs> yeah. Which uh, I, I think La Bamba was probably the better name for it. Oh, yeah. It definitely sticks more than Let's Go. But um, yeah, they went with Let's Go. So for casting, we go into casting. Now we're trying to find our Richie. Lou Diamond Phillips first heard of the role from his agent. He went to the audition on the assumption that the film was about Frankie Valley. <laughs> uh, the audition was in Dallas, Texas. After finding out it wasn't about Valley, he still read the script. And like while he was reading, he's like, yeah, this is totally, I can totally be in this film. I can totally be in this film. <laughs> um, although not being Chicano, Lou Diamond Phillips does speak Spanish and he is indigenous. He's Cherokee. Uh, his and he had this distinct look, you know, that got him a screen test back in LA. Um, he knocked the screen test out of the park and was cast as Richie. Now there was a lot of blowback for this because uh, Lou Diamond Phillips, again, he is in Chicano, but Valdez, however, remembered that Richie's Richie was Chicano and Yaki in Indian, so something his mom was super proud of. And if you remember in the movie, she says, "My grandfather was a full-blooded Yaki Indian," <laughs> like she was very, very proud of it. And he also said that, you know, Richie was, of course, Chicano and, and indigenous, but he also kind of had features of an Italian and he wanted to get the closest look he could to how he would look as an ad, actor portraying him. And I think Lou Diamond Phillips actually knocks it out of the park in the way he looks and portrays him. Yeah. Although I think Lou Diamond Phillips is probably better looking than Richie. <laughs> um, but you can see the similarities of how they look. And I think he was, yeah, thank you, Jack. He was perfect for the role as cast. Um, so with Lou Diamond Phillips already in cast, what he did was he would take guitar lessons and he was studying, you know, archive footage of Richie to pay homage to the character. You know, he asked the family, Hey, if I do this in his performances, is okay. The only thing he didn't do was sing because even he said himself, I'm a horrible singer. Uh, with that though, we go to the next role of Bob, Bob Morales, Jesse Borrego, who you might know from Blood and Blood Out who also wrote the script for that film, was actually considered for role of Bob, which I found interesting. I don't think he could have been a good Bob. But Isai Mraz was cast as Bob due to his success in Bad Boys, the film with Sean Penn. You ever see that movie? Yes, love it. A good movie. Mm -hmm. Valdez felt he could portray the rebel that is Bob Morales. Also, the funny thing is, Isai Mraz's last name is Morales, and Bob is Morales. Uh veteran Chicano actress Rosana da Solo was cast as Connie Venezuela. You guys might remember her from Santa Lera. She plays Jaime's wife. Um, Joe Pantaleano, a character actor, a.k.a. Joey Pants, was cast as Bob Keane, and we love some Joey Pants on this podcast. Do love Joey Pants. Yep. The late Elizabeth Pena was cast as Rosie Morales, and fresh off the teen comedy, My Science Project, Danielle Von Zernick was cast as Donna. I have that DVD around here right in front of me. 
<laughs> I'm sure you do. I, I, oh, yeah. I, when I was writing these notes, I'm like, I'm pretty sure Tony has seen this movie because I never oh, saw we'll, it. We'll get to that at a later date. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, another thing that was really great about this film is the music. Now, the music is all performed by Californian band Los Lobos. And this was per request of the Venezuela family. So I know Brian came out and said that the Los Lobos versions of, of Richie Valens songs are better than the Richie Valens songs. I, I don't know. I think Los Lobos is a very good band. I think they did a good job. I like the original more. That's just me than the cover. But like they were perfectly done, you know, cast for this film to make the music for it. I, I could talk about Los Lobos for 72 hours in a row because I love Los Lobos. Um it's more of the fact is it's like saying, you know, uh, um, a power tool is better than just a hammer. You know, yeah, it is. But how about all the years the hammer worked and the power tool wasn't around? You know, that's kind of how I kind of look a little bit with Richie again under the radar. And again, come on now. Like, this is 1950s. Like, what? nothing in the 50s instrumentational-wise, I don't know, could beat the instrumentation of what Los Lobos is doing for the same songs. I could be wrong. But... That again, you know, it's all left for different interpretation. That song rules. Yes, Sleepwalk. Yes. Uh, but with that, Tony, you actually let us right in. Let's just go in straight into our film breakdown, my man. Let's do it. See the arc? He starts down here. He ends up here. Where's my arc, Paulie? Awesome opening tone. Thank you so much for putting that in. Uh, so as you can see, the opening of the film is kids playing basketball, the sound riffs of Sleepwalk, and the eventual explosion of a plane where we like we just saw on the video version. Check us out on YouTube at Statistic Penguin Studios for the video version. And Richie awakes from a nightmare. Uh, Valdez and Venezuela's family worked as farm workers. Again, as I said earlier, so Valdez was really involved in the Cesar Chavez movement. And he likes to portray that in here as Richie's family is working as fruit pickers here. We then see the appearance of Bob. And I love uh, Bob's riding his Harley and they have the crawl of La Bamba come up as he's riding it. Bob looks like a badass. It's just, uh, to me, it's like an iconic scene to have this character. And a character that, although he's not the greatest character in person in the film, morality-wise, he's awesome. and <laughs> Like, so many memorable quotes from him. The performance is great. Uh, he's actually riding a Harley that was dressed up as an Indian motorcycle. Uh, but I thought they did an a excellent job of, you know, kind of portraying Bob, the character here, coming in as he rides into camp. And we also see the introduction of Connie and Rosie. Uh, the run up the hill scene is also shown here with Richie carrying his guitar. Uh, they have the brotherly love moment where Richie explains, like, he always carries his guitar everywhere. And you kind of see, like, how they have a really good relationship in terms of them, too you know, as brothers, and there's like a really good love for each other. Uh, Bob, you could tell, is a little bit of a rebel. Richie is more the goody two-shoes. Um, we later find that Bob is uh, doing some illegal stuff, and he just got out of jail. That's why he just came up to this camp. But, you know, it's a, like a homecoming for him. We also see that uh, Bob and Rosie, who Richie has a crush on, hook up. <laughs> and uh, Richie is heartbroken as he was interested in Rosie. 
Bob tells his mom he has money to get them out of this shithole. And he promises this big house to them. Uh, he shows her the money. And she's like, where'd you get it? He's like, I was working. The way he's uh, crying is like his anger in this film makes me laugh so much by Isai Morales. Oh, so they agree to leave and go, you know, to their new home. And Richie and the family are leaving. You know, he kind of gives Rosie the cold shoulder because he's upset because, you know, her and Bob hooked up. And Bob kind of tells Rosie, come with him. Uh, and Rosie's looks like, like, oh, my dad wouldn't like that. And then she got, she decides just to go with her dad screaming at her. Do you know who played Rosie's dad? Uh, no. No, who was it? This is another great like callback because it's he's played by Tony Gennaro. And Tony Gennaro is Miguel from the Tremor series. Oh, nice. <laughs> so when I saw it, when I was rewatching this, I'm like, oh, my God, it's Miguel. <laughs> How about we use a tractor? Tractor makes noise like that. Me and my brother always quote the the Tremors Miguel. He's like one of our favorite characters. So they leave for their new lives now to a better life without having to work on the fruit picking camps. We shoot the three months later, and the big house they pro- were promised is a shack, and this place is completely run down. Uh, it's very very badly, you know. It's all paints coming off. The wood is old. You could tell it's not really the greatest upkept house. Rosie and Bob live next door in a trailer home. And we learned that Bob isn't really home much, which I mean, it's not surprising. So with that, we get to another main character that has a big influence in here was the introduction of Donna. And Richie automatically, when he sees her, says he's in love with her. Uh which I think is hilarious. Like Richie seems to be a person that falls in love very quickly. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> it just, it's just a little bit. <laughs> we later find that Bob has been selling drugs as he shows his friend, Mexican Ed and Mexican Ed is played by Mike Moroff. And we know him from Desperado. Ooh, also, yeah. he was just in from dusk till dawn. He's one of the bodyguards at the end with Christos. And I think it's hilarious that, Three to three weeks in a row, we've had Mike Moroff in some role on the film, which is funny. Look at that. I think he <laughs> deserves to be on here. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Then we go into the famous audition for the Silhouettes. So Richie goes to audition for a band called the Silhouettes, and that's where he meets Rudy, who is playing a horrible rendition on the saxophone. <laughs> um, the Silhouettes, I think, is a really cool you know, ensemble of a band. Uh, if you notice, there's all different ethnicities. There's African American, there's uh, Asian American there, which I thought was pretty cool. He busts out his old amp and he sings a song of Rip It Up by Little Richard. Oh, yeah. Which I think is excellently done. Uh, Brian says Rudy is the worst. I he is the worst. He knows what's best for the, uh, the silhouettes. <laughs> uh, the singing for Richie was done by David Hidalgo of Los Lobos. So, like I said, Lou Diamond Phillips did the guitar training and whatnot, but he didn't do the singing. He thought he was a horrible singer. So as we cut to Richie, it gets into the silhouettes and he comes home. It's kind of funny. He comes home to tell his mom uh, that he's in the silhouettes and she's like, that's great, Mijo. And she's like, what the hell is the silhouettes? <laughs> Which makes me laugh like uh, watching it because she's so tired from her shifts. We also find that uh, Bob gets high with his friend Mexican Ed and he gets to a fight with Rosie. It kind of shows the character of Bob, how bad he is. He's never home. He's a troublemaker. Uh, Rosie tells him she's pregnant. And Bob says probably one of the most hilarious lines and dumbest lines I ever heard. 
it's not my first <laughs> or my last. And uh, she kicks him out of the house, and uh, that's when um, Richie tries to intervene. And mom says, "No, it's them." Uh, we cut to Richie going to Donna's house to walk her home. Uh, Richie invites her to his garage party where the silhouettes are playing. Uh, that's when her dad comes home, who's a used car salesman. Uh, he asks her, "Is Richie Italian?" <laughs> Which is funny because, like I said, Richie was sometimes looks the uh, portrayed and you know asked was he really italian and like we said about that said he looked italian uh mm-hmm. this also shows like the uh the bigotry among caucasian chicanos like later we learned um about that with you know they don't want their daughter dating anybody of different ethnicities and whatnot uh the dad it's kind of funny it's play he's played by sam anderson who you might remember as the principal from forrest gump <laughs> who has sex with forrest's mom uh, he's also Jack, uh, Dr. Jack Kaysen of ER, and he's another uh, principal in Growing Pains. That's Principal DeWitt, uh, Mike's principal from Growing Pains, which when I saw him, I'm like, oh, man, that's Principal DeWitt. I still call him Principal DeWitt because I used to watch Growing Pains a lot when it was on reruns. <laughs> uh, so uh, then we go to the garage party. And this song makes me laugh because Rudy is performing the horrible performance of Charlena. <laughs> and it's just like, Charlena! Like the way he sings, you know I love you. Like, his voice is cracking, it's just bad. He also does uh, Good Night My Love, which is horrible. Uh, Richie gets pissed off because he did not get to perform. And you could kind of tell like the animosity between Rudy and Richie as Richie's talent is kind of making him... Uh, not you know kind of nervous and like he's jealous of him which i mean how would you feel tone if somebody came into your band and was just 10 times better than you oh well you know i mean that's that's well number one you're letting someone like him into the band you should know that you're bringing in somebody who's really awesome so you should already know in your brain that this is something that's going to possibly come up you wouldn't but no that's you know they didn't know that so well this is what happened Yes, and Richie's family's there to watch. Bob's there. And they see laugh because his mom and his brothers and sister are in the car. Bob's outside and he's like smoking a cigarette and he looks at the mom and he goes, you know, he does a little what's up. And then when he doesn't get to play, he's like, uh, the mom gets upset and she's like, oh, you're messing with the wrong one. My grandfather was a 100% Yaki Indian. And like that's when she says she's going to make sure Richie is, uh, his talents are shown. Uh, then we have a cut to another bad dream. Now, this is recurring bad dreams keep happening of the plane exploding, and it later gets explained in the movie. Um, Bob comes home drunk, and he is already kicked out by Rosie, and he sleeps next to Richie, and they have a funny little interaction with them two talking. Uh, but before they sleep, they talk about Steve, who was Richie's dad, and Bob's stepdad. And also, Bob says something like random, like, we gotta get you laid. Like, <laughs> It's about yeah. time we got you laid. And you can tell Richie is like such a goody two shoes. He's just like, you know, let's just go to sleep. Uh, then we cut to one of my favorite scenes in the movie, which is at Cowboy Palace. Richie goes into a bar that his father, Steve, had drank himself to death from. So we find out Steve was kind of an alcoholic. And uh, do you remember what song he was going to play for them? Oh, why don't you let us know? <laughs> Boney Maroney. <laughs> that's, that's absolutely right. And Bob has the best response. Uh, Boney Ramoni for these shit stompers. <laughs> uh, it's a Western bar with a lot of Caucasians. 
he wanted to play Boney Maroney, but after seeing the crowd, he gets nervous and decides, oh man, let's switch it up to Love It, Texas, where he plays Buddy <laughs> Holly's um, Oh Boy with Bob on the drums, which makes me laugh. Love It, Texas? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and they start, he starts playing. Bob tries to catch up, keep tempo, and then eventually he catches up. Everybody starts dancing and whatnot, and it's like a big hit. The uh, owner of the bar... Uh, who's played by Noble Willingham, who we might remember from Blake in Fire in the Sky. He was also the Border Patrol sergeant in the Born in East L.A. Walker, Texas Ranger. He was a sergeant in uh, Good Morning Vietnam. Another great character actor. Uh, you know, dances with the mom. Everybody's cheering. And we cut to um, the morning, and Bob and him are talking about Bob's trying to sweet-talk his way into being a Richie's band. Like, you don't need nobody. You know, we can make a lot of dough and I could be your drummer. And that's where Richie tells him, you know, you can, you can, thank you for helping me, but, you know, just worry about Rosie. And he gets pissed and leaves. leaves. And that's when Ro- Rosie walks in and gives him the cold shoulder. That that whole, like, dynamic of the relationship tone, like, makes me laugh because as she walks in, they're sitting there and she's like, good morning, Connie. Good morning, Richie. And she just walks by him. You could tell he gets so pissed. Like, he's very childish. He gets so pissed and then he leaves. Um, and that's where the mom was talking about running out the American Legion room as Steve was a former veteran. She wants to rent this room out for Richie and have this big, you know, spectacular band performance. And, you know, again, she's showing that she's Richie's the best. And, like, Bob basically has resentment for thinking Richie's the golden child. Um, that's where she comes up with the concept, uh, Ricardo Valenzuela and his flying guitar. <laughs> um, so we go up to the lead up to this performance, and this part really made me laugh because we see, you know, them promoting it. But before that, we go, he brings the band to the venue, and Rudy doesn't want to do anything to do with it. He's like, I know what's best for the, the silhouettes, Chino. Which kind of makes you laugh. Like, so what do you think about that whole lead up where he's like, he takes him to the, the the venue and like Rudy's like not going for it. Well, it's pretty much again, um, you know, it's time to shed Rudy. I think at this point, pretty much is my feeling for Richie. Yep, and like as you say that, that's exactly what they did. They kicked Rudy out of the band, and they decide that the silhouettes will perform there. Uh, Bob makes the flyers and ha- passes them all out to his biker friends. You know, uh, which kind of foreshadows Bob's work as an artist because he was talking crap to the, his mom and Richie and them like these look like shit and she's like oh you can do better and he does it and he's like I should have kept my mouth shut as he's painting uh, but he passes them out to all his biker friends and tells them to hit up every liquor store every bar um, the mom does advertising on an ice cream truck which cracks me up uh, it reminds me a lot of uh, the Blues Brothers when they're going through the towns with their big old you know bell of a microphone and they're they're promoting their, their uh, concert um, and they pay for the place with the rent money. So, at, you know, then we open up to the performance at the American Legion. And I thought this was actually a really nicely shot, you know, scene. Uh, the place is packed. You know, they got a new sax player. And we first see the introduction of Bob Keane, who's played by Joey Pants. And he orders a 10 cent Coke. Like, Jesus Christ, man, 10 cents for a oh, Coke? I'd like, save so much money in my life if it was a 10 cent Coke. That's... <laughs> I totally would too, man. Like it's just watching this film made me think, like, man, how much cheaper stuff was back then. The whole movie, though, um, as you stated, it, it's shot 
Um, I think the cinematography from the time Bob is coming in on his motorcycle, it feels the time period. It feels exactly um, what it's meant to be. And as you stated, the um, performances all are shot really, really well. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is back to earlier, you know. Here's one out of Lubbock, Texas. Cowboy Palace. (laughs) Just the way he looks and the way that everything is shot, it's shot really well. Yeah, and you know the con- the concert that he performs, he does. Um, I was framed as one of the songs, you know, uh, which makes me laugh because when he's doing it, uh, the mom's asking, "Where's Bob at?" And the person she's talking to, who's played by Daniel Valdez, is like, "Oh, I don't know. He didn't answer us. You know, he I've been trying to reach him. He hasn't answered." So eventually, as Richie is performing, "I was framed," Bob walks in completely wasted <laughs> with his biker friends. Um, <laughs> And it may, he's like, it cracks me up because he holds a bottle of Miller Lite and the uh, no Miller Genuine Draft, and the mom tried to grab it from. Him. He's like, Ew. and then he, <laughs> then he like runs into this guy and bumps into him and screams, "Yeah, Richie!" Get, and then the eventually, dance he does as he's coming through. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then they have a, this. He fights with a man he's you know bumping into, and my favorite part is while this fight is going on, they're beating the shit out of each other. It's him, Mexican Ed, Bob's punching Mexican. this guy. Uh, Richie jumps off stage to defend his brother. And, you know, at this time, you know, while this is all going on, the band is still playing. (laughs) The saxophone player is busting out this badass saxophone solo. It's like the band's still playing in Dust Till Dawn. They're breaking breaking chairs over each other there. Um, A guy gets thrown in to the glass, and then we cut into the mom yelling at them. You know, at Bob, like you ruined it for Richie. He's like, you always took up Richie. <laughs> what about <good>. me? <laughs> Again, Bob showing, Bob showing, you know, his, uh, his basically just, you know, just taste for his mom's love of Richie and showing that Richie is the golden child. Uh, then we cut to uh, Donna picking up Richie in a new car, and we find out that her dad's been telling her not to hang out with Richie because he got her this new car and doesn't want her walking home anymore with him. Uh, again, showing the setting the seeds for bigotry. Uh, people didn't like people that were different back then, and it still goes on today. But it, you know, pre- it was more prevalent in, I guess, back then and publicly. Um, well, you know, I, I take that back. It's more prevalent now publicly now, but it was still going on, which is horrible. But you know, this is just showing, you know, bigotry against like Chicanos back then due to different you know ethnicities. Uh, we then cut to Bob working as a garbage man. Tell me about the scene tone when he's working as the garbage man. Oh, again, classic Bob, you know, doing Bob things. And that's pretty much the whole movie. It's like, even as, as I saw this as a kid, this scene is definitely one that definitely stuck out. Uh, what was your favorite thing about it? When he picks up the boulder. <laughs> oh, yeah. So they go to a Hollywood studio alley and there's all these props and Bob picks up a boulder is like, <laughs> and then the guy he's with is like come on Morales we got other stops to go to and then they find that's when he finds the uh, the pictures of um, the cartoon characters that are basically throwaways from their films yeah, yeah, yeah. and he's like oh there's Woody Woodpecker and something something and that's like good. I love like, that part yeah. yeah he's like finders keepers my favorite part uh, besides the boulder part is when he grabs a giant carrot at the end and he runs it into the guy's face he's like eat it <laughs> so but, good Yes. Um, next, we cut to Bob King coming to the house. Bob King goes to meet 
Ivan's well as at home as he saw Richie and his performance. Uh, one of my favorite parts is he goes up and talks to the mom in Spanish and asks if Richie is there, and she says him in English, and then he walks to the back. Richie is singing uh, all, this old man on the guitar for the kids. <laughs> he starts speaking to him in Spanish, and Richie's just like, I don't speak Spanish, which makes me laugh. Like, uh, It, it kind of reminds me, when I saw it, it reminded me of an old uh, Carlos Quinton story when he played for the White Sox and made the All-Star team. He was in the locker room and Telemundo came up to talk to him and Univision was there and the reporter asked him like a 10 minute question in Spanish and uh, Paul Kernerkel told this story he said that uh, Carlos sat there and listened to it like the whole time and the guy is telling him you know this, this whole long question and when he's done Quentin's like uh, I don't speak Spanish <laughs> so, so that, uh, this, this cracks me up uh, when I heard it you know I don't speak Spanish and Another thing, too, here is one of the first times, uh, besides in Goonies, when he takes off the toupee, you see Joe Palantiliano rocking the bald spot here, man. Takes off his hat and shows his whole you know, dome is out there, you know. Joe, Joe Pantaleone, um, <laughs> um, but he's got a couple roles in the 80s um, around this time that he's in Running Scared with uh, Billy Crystal and Gregory Hines. He's in Eddie and the Cruisers. Mm-hmm. He's in um, risky business, but again, you're definitely right. It's kind of funny. It's a little off track about, but Joey Pants has said, you know, I've heard him talk in interviews that when he made it big in risky business, he still didn't have enough money. So he was still working as a waiter. And uh, people would see him and were like, oh, I thought you were a big movie star. He's like, yeah, you know, sometimes you get in roles, you got to pay the bills, you know. But he said his friends would tell him because he was in so many things in uh the 80s and 90s you know guido the killer pimp yep he was in so many things in that his friends would be like hey i watched the movie and you weren't in it i was wondering where you were you know which is he still laughs about today because he was taking any work he could to try to make some money and make it big but um one of my favorite actors like that doesn't get enough uh talk about no he's good yep so we then find out that bob king went to richie's house to try to sign him uh he takes him to his recording studio and when they walk down it's just basically a basement recording studio kind of like what we would do but uh richie is like oh this is the recording studio and bob keen says the mics are good i got the best tape processor here you know and when he said that defending it you know doing research on it it was actually true he was using a apex 601 tube stereo reel to reel machine and a pair of newman u47 condenser mics which would probably be sold for about ten thousand dollars today Mm-hmm. Um, the microphones are actually still on the market for 4200 so he was not lying about the gear he had uh, here's another like pivotal f- part of the movie was when he says we're going to record now I want to record you and Richie pushes back because Richie says my band's not here which shows that Richie actually cared about the people he was working with Bob tells him I can't use your band and he says what's more important your band or your music and Richie answers my family because he knows his family is struggling. His mom's working a lot of work. They don't have that great of a house. They need money. And this is probably his best way to make money for his family. We then see that Richie had a successful date with Donna and Bob shows Richie how he's been practicing, you know, drawings to enter an art contest, uh, which he eventually wins. Um, we cut to another dream and this time of the wreckage, we see him and we see his dead friend, him looking at his dead friend under the wreckage. Uh, we find out that Richie's friend was crushed by a falling plane, 
even though he wasn't at the playground, he was at his grandfather's funeral. Now, this is a true story. The plane crash at Ritchie Valley School happened on January 31st, 1957. A DC-7 fell and an F-89 jet collided and broke in midair. DC-7 landed on the playground of the Pacoma Junior High School, now named Pacoma Middle School, while students were outside at recess. Everyone on the DC-7 was killed. Several students were killed on the playground. 75 people were injured. And Richie Vans was out of school that day attending his grandfather's funeral. Uh, this crash caused his fear of, fighting, of flying. And his one of the victims was actually his best friend at the time. And, you know, it's a crazy line that's in this movie. He tells Donna while he's telling her about, you know, the plane crash. He said um, he wasn't there that day, but, you know, maybe he wasn't meant to die that day. And he said uh, that's why he wants to be a, a rock and roll star, because stars don't fall out of the sky. It's a great line. Yeah, which I thought was awesome. Um, then we see, you know, the fight over Bob's career choice. He's trying to tell Rosie that he wants to be an artist. And she's like, how are you going to pay for it? How are you gonna pay for you know the bills we have? We have a baby on the way, and he gets pissed and runs outside. And the part that makes me laugh is that he's feeding a carrot, like a I don't know if it's a carrot or a, a piece of corn to a rabbit, but he sticks it in tequila before giving it to him. <laughs> and then he starts drinking it, and he asks to move in with Richie, which he says, "Yeah, but what are you gonna do when the baby's here?" And they kind of get into an argument. Um, that's when the Connie comes in while they're talking and she tells him, you know, Bob wants you to come down to Ghost Star next week. He's going to try to sign you to Defy. He gets really excited and he says, Bob, tell mom about your art contest. We find out that Bob won $500 for the art contest. She's really excited, but she says, oh, that'll be good for the baby. He's like, in art lessons, you know, <laughs> she's like, oh, well, you know, congratulations. And she was like really happy for them. So we see a somber moment where like the mom and them all share uh, you know, a nice loving moment between them. So before we go in for your tone, like as I'm watching this, like, do you sense that the mom has a little more favoritism towards Richie? Yeah. I mean, a little bit. It feels that way. I mean, and it's only probably because of who Bob was before he came back into town. It's tough to like s separate the, you know, just who Bob is. You know what I mean? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. I kind of got that a little bit. And I think, you know, just a little thing she says. I don't think she does it on purpose. I think she loves no. Bob. I just think that, you know, Bob has done so many bad things that she's kind of like, you know, Richie's a good kid, so she's trying to encourage him. Um, we then cut to the recording studio where Richie does 60 takes of Come On, Let's Go. <laughs> that was the best. And again, we go back to uh, where he's like, how many takes do we have to do? And Bob's there with him. And Bob's like, I didn't hear anything wrong with the first damn take. And Joey Pants, Bob Keen, tries to tell him, you know, I know this isn't Mexico. Um, you don't change, you know, I know how it is, the tradition down there to change the words, lyrics of the song. And Richie responds, I've never been to Mexico, <laughs> which makes me laugh. Because if, I think Bob forgets, like, he's trying, not trying to be rude, but he's like, I know how culturally you turn things around. But Richie just goes back out, like, I've never been there, man. Been. Um, the crazy thing is the bassist who participated in the first proper studio recording of the session was Carol Kay. Uh, she was the most profilic female in her field in history and a member of a legendary wrecking crew group of the LA studio musicians. Uh, she, she had a 50-year career that included some 10,000 sessions and innumerable hits by physically, by practically 
every big name in rock, pop, and soul and contemporary genres. So have you heard of her, um, Tom? Yes, yes. Um, very, very prolific in the musicianship, um, as you stated, especially being female at this time period. And as you saying, having a hand in all these great recordings. She's very awesome. Yeah, uh, so we cut to like the scene that Tony is showing the Richie's calling Donna's house and Donna's dad is saying, oh, she's out. She's out on a date and he gets upset. She gets to an argument with her dad. They get into a fight. Um, we hear that uh, we cut to a scene of Bob getting Richie Vons playing Let's Go on the <laughs> radio. And the radio DJ is actually played by legendary radio personality Rick Dees, who uh, did uh, a bunch of, uh, you know, Rick Dees Countdown in California. He's one of the biggest radio DJs of his time. Uh, and my favorite parts when he's like, uh, Valence, huh? Valence, huh? French, huh? <laughs> and like Bob's like, how you know? He goes, essay, essay, essay. It's one of the guys from the barrio. And he goes, he goes, uh, one of the same kids from the barrio. And that's when Bob's like, not this one's that's not the same. And he's listening, he's like, pretty good. And he's like, Yes, it is. <laughs> um, Rich again continues to call and call. He doesn't get any answer. Um, then we see the pizza contest, which they have a contest with the radio DJ where what's the most common thing this mystery artist has with the vice president as Richie is the mystery artist. And of course his name is Richie Richard Nixon at the time was vice president and somebody calls for a pizza party. And the cool thing is as they, he arrives for the pizza party, everybody's going nuts. He's bringing the pizza over. Bob's bringing out records. The records are actually handing out, have the original picture. Well, the picture of the original singer, Richie Valens, which I thought was pretty cool. It was very cool. Um, so then uh, Richie gets into a fight with Donna. They break it off because of the fa her father. Uh, he, she finds out she's been going out with other guys. He doesn't like it. She tells him that he's never there. Um, he wakes up in the middle of the night, you know, but he wakes up Bob as he's trying to make the song, the song that would eventually become Donna. Uh, and he plays it to her in her phone booth. And it makes me laugh because while he's playing it, um, he's singing it to her and she's loving it. And Bob comes up and goes, Donna, <laughs> as he sees him and tells him, all right, we got, I got to take you to Mexico. We're going to get you some tail. And they drive to Mexico. And this is another cool scene where they go to Tijuana. Um, Bob tells Richie, you know, because Bob was one of the first people to push back on him changing his name from Val to Valens from Valenzuela. He tries to tell him, like, you don't lose your roots. You know, always remember who you are. And he tries to show him that down in Mexico. And like you see the picture here that Tony's put up, Los Lobos is a band that's performing in the club in Mexico and they perform La Bamba, which Bob's trying to get Richie laid and they're looking at all the girls there. And Richie hears the music and automatically goes to, to the um, band and listens to them as they're playing. Uh, David Hildago, who's shown this picture, is actually the lead singer for, for the Los Lobos and he actually did Richie's singing voice, which is kind of funny. Um, what do you think of this whole scene, Tom? Oh, I think, again, another scene shot amazingly. And, again, La ba uh, Los Lobos' version of La Bamba is, is amazing. <laughs> um, Katie was getting annoyed today because I kept singing, El Soy Capitan, Soy Capitan. <laughs> I just love the song so much. Like, I could be definitely upset, and it just makes me feel good in the scene, you know? before what we're going to end up getting to it's definitely makes you feel good in the movie yeah um so as they're in mexico rosie breaks in you know bangs on the door at their house and we find out the baby's on the way it's pouring rain bob's not there um 
The next morning, we find out Richie wakes up with a new tattoo and receives a necklace or a talisman to conquer his nightmares from a healer or a corandero, that's what they're called, um, to help take away his nightmares as Bob has been telling him about them. And I love this scene because it, it not only shows some indigenous uh, roots, it also shows the Latino roots in, you know, um, talisman and some of the cultural aspect of it, which I thought was pretty cool. And the way he talks makes me laugh because he has such a raspy voice. Muchacho. <laughs> you know, um, and he says a great line, which I, which I wrote down. The, the healer tells him to live is to sleep and to die is to awaken. And they, yes, Brian, they eat rattlesnake. I, I've had rattle, I had snake before. Have you ever had snake tone? Uh, no, but uh, when he says it in the movie, he's like, oh, I never had snake. So I got like an eat. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then he tells them, um, it's pretty good. But, you know, the part where he skins the snake, he just takes yeah. them and like basically peels them in half. Yeah. was ridiculous. I remember watching it as a kid. I was like, holy crap. Oh. Um, yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a really, I really like that scene. Uh, we go cut to Richie performing the recording of Donna and they give their list of bookings. Bob's telling him the list of bookings. He's got to go to San Francisco. He insists that they fly. Richie's like, no, I don't fly. So they drive. He's then Bob and him are talking about what should they do for a second on the side of Donna. Richie mentions La Bamba. Bob pushes back on it because Richie doesn't speak Spanish. And Richie's response, I think, is great, too. He says, if Nat King, if Nat King Cole can sing in Spanish, so can I. <laughs> and Bob, again, was pushing back. It's not a rock song. He's like, the way I play it will make it. And then eventually we cut to, you know, the family party. We see Bob with his video camera. And <laughs> that's another great scene, though, when they're going through the family party. Tell him when he, the, the guy's playing on the guitar. Uh, several of the real family members were actually in there at the scene. There is a family party at Christmas, and they were including the real Connie, who actually in the beginning of that scene, when you the camera cuts, and we see uh, Lelo, who is Daniel Valdez playing the guitar, the brother of the director. The woman sitting next to him is actually Connie, Connie Vanzuela, which is Richie's oh, mom. That's awesome. Uh, so they go through that scene, and Bob's trying to go by his baby. Rosie's pushing him away, and Bob gets pissed. And then he does a little, he puffers his face. You know? <laughs> Uh, Bob is such a great character. Like it's just it cracks it me up the way he acts. Um, the next thing we find out is you know Richie's afraid of going flying, so Bobo, as he calls his manager, buys him a car to try to convince him to fly to Philly for American Bandstand. And while they're driving, he's like, "Okay, he's like, you can have the car. Everything goes well at Philly at American Bandstand." And he goes, "Philly." He's like, "Yeah." And they start driving fast. He's like, I thought you don't like to, you, know, you don't like uh, to fly or fast cars. He's like, I don't like to fly, but I love driving fast. And they drive <laughs> down the uh, the highway. And you know, the funny thing is, while they're driving, Shaitali Lace is playing a song by Big Bopper, which you know, as we all know, Big Bopper was in this playing playing. Hello, baby. Yeah, his his dialogue in the film makes you laugh too, because that's what he always says. Hello, hello. Yeah, he says it the whole time while he's at one of his openings. And we cut to the American Grandstand performance, which is a great picture you put up right now. And he performs Donna. Um, at this time, Bob gets completely wasted off his ass. Uh, and he starts screaming about wanting to see his daughter, daughter, while his wife and 
Connie are in the house. They locked him out. She tells him to go sober up. We find out why he resents Connie so much because we find out she turned him in from selling drugs. So his mom's actually turned him in. And he always says, Do we ever find out what drugs? Bob? I think he well, he said multi, which is weed. So he was selling weed. Oh, yeah. Know. He was running weed from uh, in Mexico. Uh, and now so, he'd be hailed as a star in Mexico. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Bob was always a legend. Yeah. Uh, so we also find out. Um, when he, when Richie, one of my favorite scenes too is when he flies to the American Grandstand, Bandstand, and uh, he's super nervous but feels some comfort from his talisman. He keeps touching it. And then he tells Bob, you know, his manager on the plane, I always believed how he was going to die in a plane crash, which is ridiculous. And Bob's like, here, drink this vodka <laughs> to calm <laughs> you down. And he drinks it. Um, and we see again performance of Donna. Uh, before Bob gets into it with his family, we see that he was actually at a bar and he's watching the performance. The bartender turns it off and he's like, hey, that was my brother. He's like, yeah, and I'm your rich uh, Irish uncle. It stays <laughs> off. You know, and he gets up mad. He goes and tears up his pictures because he's so upset with it. Uh, Richie is becoming famous. He goes to back to school telling Donna he's not coming back to school. He buys his mom a house. And that's another great scene. Uh you know, as we have Bob outside and he's giving him the thumbs up and the okay sign, you could tell that Bob, his brother, is also, you know, jealous and upset about her buying the house. You know, and then we cut to the rock and roll show, the at the Alan Freed show, where we see Brian Setzer as Eddie Cochran. What'd you think of that performance, Tom? Again, really awesome. You know, Mr. Straight Cat, Brian mm -hmm. Setzer in the movie. I uh, thought it was really awesome. Yeah. And the crazy thing is, Eddie Cochran does have a background with buddy holly um he died a little more than a year in a road accident while on tour in united kingdom uh he was 21 at the time and he recorded a cover of the song three stars which was a tribute to valens richardson he's richardson and holly he was actually really close to buddy holly and some people say he never really recovered after you know the plane crash um at this concert we also see howard huntsbury as jackie wilson uh, he, my brother is a big, huge Jackie Wilson fan, and he doesn't really like this performance. And while doing research for this, I found out that Howard Hutsbury actually sang the cover to Jackie Wilson's Hire for Ghostbusters 2. Really? Yeah, <laughs> which is pretty crazy. Um, I, I, I didn't think it was that great, the performance, but now that I think that the performance of Ghostbusters 2, I think, was better than this one. But I mean, I think of it as like he was just in there to show he was in there and they didn't really put that much emphasis on the character. But yeah, Jackie Wilson is the man. Uh, and then we find out while they're while he's performing, Richie's talking to Eddie and we find out one of the Belmonts got sick. Dina, Dion and the Belmonts, which is another great band from the 50s. You know, uh, Teenager in Love is probably their biggest hit. Uh, Richie performs La Bamba for the first time in front of an audience, and they all love it. Um, he performs. He gets a big hit. He comes back home to where they have a family party, a, a surprise party for him, and this is where he gets into a fight with Bob because Bob was supposed to get her a new dress, his mom, that is. Bob tells him, you're the damn uh, rock star. You should have got it. And then he eventually leaves. He, we find out Bob's been on the wagon. He drinks a beer. And he goes into the, the guest house. And while he's in there, he tells Richie comes in and sees him with a beer. And he goes, Mom's looking for him. He's like, why? Because I drink a beer. 
He goes, I had one sip of beer and it tastes like piss. Do you want it? <laughs> He's like, yeah. And they eventually get into a fight as, you know, Bob begins to tell him about his resentment towards him. His uh, reason he thinks Steve basically sent Richie to conquer the world and that gave him nothing because Richie was his, was his son and he wasn't. And he felt favoritism was there. And Richie tells him, you ruined your own life. Like nobody ruined it but you. And they eventually get into a physical fight where the talisman gets broken. What do you think about this scene, Tom? Again, powerful, especially when it gets broken. Because it's almost like this bond in the moment that feels like it's broken and it can't be repaired. And you also know, again, where the story's heading and you're like, is this the end? Is this, is this how it's all going to end? So it leaves you a little bit feeling of, you know, what's going to happen. Yep. And then we cut to Richie and Donna in a car and he tells her about the issues and she tells him. You know, he kind of understand it's kind of hard for Bob. And he tells her he will always love her. And she's like, you're so serious. He's like, I mean, it. and they stop the kiss. And then we cut to the winter party. And you could tell where this is going. You know, the winter party tour. You see Marshall Crenshaw as Buddy Holly. He also sang a, a song, Someday, Somehow, for a 1982 film, Night Shift. That was his biggest hit. Uh, I really liked his performance as Buddy Holly in here. Of course, I really like the Gary Busey performance as Buddy Holly in his film. Uh, but I like, you know, this little rendition. We see Stephen Lee as the big bopper. And he's also from War Games. And that guy said his talking, hello, baby. You know, we see Richie, as we show in this picture, calling um, Bob, his manager, to complain about the heating system. Bob? Are you still there? <laughs> yeah, come on. And, you know, after that, he calls Bob, his brother, who, who's playing with his daughter, saying he's about to go to church. And they kind of make amends. And the crazy part is that Bob fixed the talisman, and he's actually playing with it with his daughter. And Richie tells him, come meet me in Chicago. You know, at the end of the tour, I really need some family around me. He's suffering from sickness. And, you know, Bob tells him, yeah. And I thought this was a real touching part because, you know, as we learn you know, from interviews, you know, in the future, Bob Morales really really missed his brother like he was very close close to richie and he felt a lot of blame you know and guilt for the way they kind of he kind of treat him he know he loved he thinks he knows richie knows he loved him but it's just something that still means out there i mean it was his kid brother that passed away at 17 and i thought it was a nice little showing of you know bob and richie kind of reconciling before the eventual ending which is shown by this picture since the bus was breaking down the heat it was cold Buddy Holly, we learn, is lining up a plane. After the Bob call, they go into a coin toss to see who's going to get on a plane. Buddy Holly tells them, see, man, I didn't know if you were going to do this because you don't like the flying thing. So I, Tommy Elsett was going to do it. But in all fairness, let's do a coin toss. And Richie wins the coin toss, to which he responds, it's the first coin toss I've ever won, <laughs> which is crazy. Um According to Tony Elsup, who actually was there, the coin toss occurred actually in a surf ballroom and not in the airfield like in the movie. And when this scene was being filmed, Lou Diamond Phillips became really close with the Valenzuela family. They would call him Lou. They would come to the set. When this scene was being filmed, Valdez told them, hey, we're going to perform this. We're going to film this scene. I don't know if you guys should be there for it, but they still showed up. Uh, he's, Lou Diamond Phillips said that when they saw him in his costume or his, you know, wardrobe, his sister, Valen's sister, that is, ran up to him and started screaming, Richie, why did you get on the plane? Why did you fly? 
And it's kind of heartbreaking that they were still struggling again, opening a wound with this whole experience about it. That's pretty, you know, it's pretty powerful, right? Huge, hugely powerful. And um, I've heard that story for quite a long time. And to imagine again how young he was, because honestly, I was just doing the math in my head the other day. Um, you know, all health included, he would probably still be alive today if this didn't happen because he was really young. Yeah. Um, so another thing too that came through here was about Big Bopper and Waylon Jennings, who you mentioned earlier in the We Are the World. Uh, who was Buddy Holly's bass player at the time. They traded seats on this plane. Uh, the Big Bopper got on the plane and Waylon took the bus. But before the plane took off, um, Buddy said to Waylon, I hope you freeze your ass off on the, that bus. When Waylon jokingly told him, well, I hope your plane crashes. And that remark haunted him for the rest of his life. Yep. Because of what happened. And the iconic line when they're in the plane and Richie is nervous, you could tell he's sick, they're flying, and Buddy Holly turns to him and says, hey man, don't worry, Richie. The sky belongs to the stars. And we find out that they eventually perished from crashing. We hear it over the radio. Bob is listening while he's working on a car. Rosie comes out and says, Bob, did you hear what they said about Richie? And he's like, you sure they said Richie? And she goes, oh my God. Oh, that's right. <laughs> now, what he would pack your Woo, man, was out of that seat. Darn it. <laughs> um, yeah. Hey, put uh, a little light on an unfortunate situation, right? That's here. all right. Uh, yeah. So he runs to Connie's house, and Connie is crying, saying, you know, she's in shock, and they hold each other, and she says, not my Richie. And then Sleepwalk plays again as they go through the funeral, which is a very like powerful scene as well. Um, as you see the cars passing, you see Bob go to the bridge after the funeral and scream the famous line, Richie. Such, such, um, you know, two things in this whole, in this whole part is number one, of course, is the mother, you know, she's just. Not my Richie. Bob, not my Richie. Not Richie. I mean, I think that's the part that got me to tear up yesterday because again the performance you know it, it, it's there and you can feel it but also you i can feel honestly in that backyard um the scene and it actually happening you know really and then of course the other one of course is as you stated is you know the famous And I think right there, it's not the scream that does it for me. It's the hill, the them two running up the hill, you know. Because again, um, I do love a, a good biopic, and again, I'm all I could feel it, the whole story, and it it does it really well there. Yeah, and you know, I thought the ending was perfect, uh, in my opinion. But the original ending actually included the real Bal Morales on his bike, saying words about his brother. Uh, Luis Valdez filmed it, but he said it didn't really work out too well because Bob wasn't an actor. Um, mm -hmm. So he decided to go with the latter that we saw. And I think that was probably the best choice. Um, just seeing them running up the hill, it's sad because, you know, you think about the good times with his brother and now he's gone and gone so soon, only 17 years old. So um, that is our film breakdown. You ready to uh, get into some critical reception of this film? Let's do it. All right, let's get into it, man.
You know that fat cocksucker says I look like the Shah of Iran? Who does? Tony. I never got that at all. So we go into our critical reception and fan theory section of the of our show. Uh, La Bamba made $54 million on a $6.5 million budget, which is a smash hit success. Uh, like I said, um, critics loved it, including Roger Ebert, who gave it a thumbs up. Although he did say the character of Richie was a little bit too much vanilla and goody two-shoes, um, which I thought was interesting because Valdez later on will go on to say that this film does not get made without Bob, Bob Morales, because Bob Morales not only gave crucial information to the film to be made into a story but also his character Richie was always loved by everybody everybody he talked to said he was such a great person he's like you can't really make a movie about somebody that's so good like you have to have kind of like that offset and he said Bob was the perfect person for that you know the character of Bob which I agree yeah I definitely agree too it it I think he's the glue to the movie personally um you know, I think it's his story just as much as it is Richie's story, don't you? Yes, yeah, totally. And it's kind of funny you mentioned that because before we uh, get into like the other accolades this film received, there was a sequel pushed by Luis Valdez, the director. He wanted to make a movie about Bob Morales and the aftermath. Um, that been cool. But he couldn't get anyone to make it up, uh, to pick it up from financing, which, you know, and if you look at Valdez's career, as a director, he is considered the father of Chicano uh, theater and film due to Zoot Suit in this film. He only directed another one other movie after this. He tried to do a Frida Kahlo film that never came to fruition until Selma Hayek and her uh, production studios bought it. Uh, he couldn't do he couldn't really do what he really wanted. He said there's a lot of politics in it, so he went back to doing uh, Broadway and plays. Uh, but like really influential, like he's a person that basically I think put Chicano theater on the map, in my opinion. Because after this film came out, you have Stand Deliver, you know, you have um, basically the propelling of, you know, Robert Rodriguez said that he basically was inspired to write El Mariachi from Luis Valdez and La Bamba, you know, as showing that aspect that even though unknown Latino filmmakers can get it done. And then America Ferreira for uh, The Traveling Pants, that the director of that film was inspired by Luis Valdez. So he inspired a generation of filmmakers, uh, Chicano and Latino filmmakers really awesome really just really awesome um again to say again all of what you said and to think that this movie feels like it's made by a, a seasoned director that somebody who's made 50 you know not 50 like 10 to 12 pictures but it's and then to say that it, it's this good and not to have more after it it's it is a kind of in its own way a little bit of a shame definitely um i would still like to see him do something he's in his 80s now yeah. so we don't know but i mean do getting doing something new yeah <laughs> uh, so this film the labamba was included among the american film institute's 2004 list of the 400 movies nominated for the top 100 america's greatest music and movies for the song labamba uh it was nominated for a golden globe for the best motion picture drama and it was actually a film that lou diamond phillips says propelled its career and i totally agree he says without labamba he doesn't have the career he has, which I think is completely honestly true. Um, so we don't have any real like fan theories because this is a biopic, but we do have a 
I would say like a more of a factor or a realization that the tour is actually responsible for the plane crash. And I'm going to read this to you because it can be argued that the Winter Dance Party Tour with that Richie Valens, Buddy Holly, and J.P. Richardson, known as the Big Bopper, were performing in was just as responsible for their deaths as the plane crash that killed them. Buddy Holly would never have chartered a flight had it not been for the unpleasant and exhausting conditions of the tour, which was poorly planned with absolutely no regard for logistics. Rather than circling the upper Midwest and logistics, logical geographical sequence and allowing enough time between concerts for adequate rest and travel, many of the venues were scheduled within one day of each other and as far as five or 600 miles apart. The demanded all-night travel on inequitably heated buses, many of which had been replaced. The tour did not use any road crew to help with loading and unloading baggage and instruments, nor were the buses suitable for winter travel conditions as they were reportedly refurbished school buses that were considered unsuitable for students. They're unsuitable for students, but they use them for the rock stars. <sighs> Furthermore, as the interstate highway system had not yet been completed, the travel took place on local two-lane roads which made frequent stops and did not allow for faster driving speed. These conditions had an adverse effect on many of the musicians, most notably Buddy Holly's drummer, Carl Bunch, who suffered frostbitten toes. Buddy Holly was frustrated with the situation and chartered a flight to the next venue because he did not want to spend another night traveling all night on a poorly heated bus. The next performance was to be held in Moorhead, Minnesota, a good 365 miles and an all-day trip from the Surf Ballroom in Clearview, Iowa, where the winter party was, Holly chartered a plane from Dwyer Flying Service in nearby Mason City, Iowa, to, to fly to the to Iowa to fly he, Valens, and Richardson to Fargo, North Dakota, the closest airport to Moorhead. Holly chartered the plane mainly because he wanted to fly in ahead of the others do laundry that had it been done and to catch up and sleep. What do you think about that? Oh, awful. You know, awful and definitely what caused what we know to have happened. I mean, it's, you know, it's another just tragic of, well, it's again, sometimes you rush. I mean, I'm not saying they rushed, but to get to somewhere that they needed to get because of these awful conditions, because they were pushed to those levels. It's a very, very sad and unfortunate. Yeah, and you know, like I think Valdez kind of hints it in the film when they're going over the radio and they're saying about them passing away and why they had the chartered flight, and he yeah. says because of inadequate heating on the bus, and you can see Bob, like Bob Keen, looks so pissed and like sad because he knows that he was probably part to blame for why they took that flight. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So that's our La Bamba breakdown. I know we went through the film in 10 depth and explaining each scene. Uh, let us know if you guys like the more in depth explaining of the scenes or you guys want to sort of shorten it up on that end. But uh, Tone, what do you think about this film? I think it's amazing, my man. And I really enjoyed going through it um, again as far as biopics go. Um, the reason we did this was because Bob Marley just came out with the biopic. So I thought, 
well, what it's another biopic that we can go through. And La Bamba is, well, a top three musical biopic. I think we would both agree. So we said, hey, let's take a look at it. And honestly, it's been it's been really awesome and a blast. And again, another opportunity to listen to some great music from everybody involved. Yes, yes. Totally agree. You can find La Bamba on Prime. Uh, I think it's $3 to rent and $12 to own. I bought it, so I can watch it anytime now. Uh, but yeah, definitely, if you haven't seen it, check it out. Um, and as you said, we're kind of going with a theme of when a biopic is released or a theme of movies being released. We can go into what's coming soon for us. Let's get ready to rumble. Coming soon. Proximamente. Coming soon. Coming soon. So Tom, like you said that we were going through themes of what we're going to be releasing. So we know in a few weeks, the Oscars are coming up. So yes. what theme are we going with for the Oscars? This uh, next week, we are going to go for, well, uh, somebody who has won or, and been nominated for an Oscar. And that is Joe Pesci. And he is, well, in a, in a movie that we've picked, a comedy classic, uh, My Cousin Vinny. Um, as soon as I broke this to my wife, she immediately was excited because she loves this movie, and so do I. And I yes, too. Um, Marissa Tomei actually won the Best Supporting Actress for this film. There you go. There, there, there's a little bit better. There we go. Did Pesci even win an Oscar? Was I wrong on that? Yeah, actually, he did. He won. So, uh, giving away a little, a little trivia, he uh, he won for Goodfellas. Oh, that's um, right. And he, when he won for Goodfellas, he actually brought the Oscar on set of my cousin Vinny to show the other cast. Look at that, folks. We're going to have more of that next week. That's what's amazing. Yeah, so one of our favorite films, one of my favorite films, uh, growing up, Ralph Macchio's in this film. Um, also, Herman Munster. <laughs> Good. Uh, for a uh, Great film. Really looking forward to doing a deep dive and finding out about, about the development of this film. Uh, so be sure to check us out next week at 8 p.m. for that. Uh, you know, I'm loving these breakdowns, man. We've had like four great films to break down, and now we're just going to have another one to add to that. Yes. Whole. This was our fifth. This will be our, what, next week, our sixth one? Today yep. was five. Yeah. 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 Awesome. So just breathing I, through these. I look at them at my, like, my DVDs. Like, they're like, they're like this. They're pretty cool. I love them. Yes, sir. Uh, so, but with that, since you already talked about your DVDs and we talked some music today, let's get into the Sugar Baggies music soundtrack pick of the week. The Sugar Baggies soundtrack pick of the week. We had such a friendly, 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 friendly show tonight that we're not going to get into the much debate of the Doors movie and Oliver Stone and all of that. But what we can mention tonight is the amazingness of the music that I think incorporates the film The Doors. Because honestly, a lot of the songs I would not have been familiar with, some of the more deeper tracks from The Doors, if I didn't watch the movie when I was 13 or 14. And... Um, since we were talking about musical biopics um, and I thought I could make a little joke about us, you know, sometimes not seeing eye to eye on this movie. I thought the Doors soundtrack was a great one. And I'm also, um, yes, I'm not a fan of the Indian part, uh, the, um, the desert naked Indian parts in, in the film, 
But I am a fan of Val Kilmer's performance because I think he looks just like Jim Morrison and he did a pretty good job and the soundtrack is pretty killer. So with that, to tell you, Ray Manzarek, um, Ray Manzarek went to my high school. Oh, to see the same undergraduate. You're going to tell me he hated the movie. We, no, but okay. he, but uh, yes, he did not like the movie. I remember the concert he performed at the school. He talked about it and he said he did not enjoy the movie particularly. However, he said that Val Kimmer was awesome as Jim. Yeah, I mean, that's where I think more. There is a lot of problems with the movie, but if we can all agree that Val Kilmer did a pretty awesome job as Jim. Then, oh, I love Val Kilmer. I you know, know. And, and I know you do. You've never spoken ill will of anything mm. from Val. So, uh, yeah. So, The Doors is my pick um, for this week. Um, really quick again here before we go out. Um, starting this Wednesday, um, we are going for the hookup on music. We're going to be live going Wednesdays at 7 p.m. going forward. Um, starting with this Wednesday, we're going to have a fellow penguin joining me, Ruhan Luke. He's going to be reaching into his vinyl um, collection, and uh, he's got something big and cool planned for us. And then the following week, we have a huge announcement for the huge guest, but we are just not ready to announce it just oh, yet. Nice. It will be coming up, but I just want to let everybody know, please tune in Wednesday. Um, to get yourself pre-prepped for our My Cousin Vinny, which will be amazing. Yes. Uh, be sure to check out the Hookup on Music. Tony does a great job with it. Uh, Tony, uh, I know I told you this privately, but publicly, I want to let you know, like, you know, everybody knows my computer was put, I had to take my computer for some repair and get it upgraded. I haven't gotten it back yet, so I'm doing it from my old MacBook. Uh, Tony's been, like, a really big help. He actually helped with the sound for this uh, review. He's been helped killing it on, uh, you know, X, getting out us uh, more followers, you know, interacting with our community. And he's been killing it with his um, video viewing Hollywood stories, which you can uh, watch on our YouTube channel. Uh, there are two minute little things. He just released one about Billy Zane and he just had one uh, earlier about the uh, the great. Um, what was his name? I can't think of his name. I'm just thinking of his. I guess uh, he's Powers, uh, Booth? Powers Booth. Yes. Powers Booth. I can see his face. Yes, I can see in Tom Savini, all great little two, three minute videos that give a little interview into it. And he's also do, been doing some toy reviews. Uh, he just did one for uh, He-Man, which made me laugh because there's a bunch of He-Man clips in there. The, 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 um, like the bat symbol went out and it was like, we got to come up with some more fun stuff. And it was like, honestly, I have this huge little tykes um, toy box just filled with toys from when I was a kid that I got and it's awesome because I could close my eyes and reach in there and I'll get anything from a wrestling figure to Thundercats to a He-Man. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's uh, awesome. So, so shout out to you, Tone, for doing an excellent job. You know, you've been really, really helping me. Uh, and, you know, I, I really enjoy doing this show with well, you we, too. We fuel each other. You're, yeah. you, last week we had an amazing lunch and just spending time and getting to talk these movies with you, my man, is definitely, definitely a, a pleasure. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much, my man. And thank you, everybody, for watching and listening. Uh, thank you for everybody who interacts with us on Twitter. Uh, be sure to check us out at statisticpenguinstudios.com for blogs, uh, our videos, and old podcasts. Uh, check out, uh, it's getting drafty in here. Brian's going to be doing a show on Sunday, a special Sunday show. Uh, I believe the start time is at 8 o'clock. Uh, he's going to be doing uh, 
worst wrestling gimmicks show. So he's going to have the um, great comic punk guy, fellow penguin punk guy, uh, Shankster, a big supporter of our show, and the Penguins, another great guy. And he's also going to, I believe, have Dougie Fresh of the Bums, another great supporter and a funny guy. Uh, so be sure to check that out on Sunday. And again, check out Tony's uh, The Hookup on Music because he does an excellent job with that. Um, with that, my friends, you guys have a great night and we will be seeing you next week for a review of My Cousin Vinny. I can't get enough of that song, my man. We will see you all next week for My Cousin Vinny. Take care. Take it easy. Thanks for listening to the At The Show Podcast. A Sadistic Penguin Studios production. Game over, man. It's game over. What the fuck are we going to do now? What are we going to do? Maybe we could build a fire, sing a couple of songs, huh? Why don't we try that?